0: book of 1 Samuel together today, so turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 2. If you don't have uh, a Bible underneath the seat in front of you, there are uh, blue Bibles, and in those Bibles we're on page 129, down at the bottom on the right-hand column is where we'll be in just a minute. Um, If you're new with us, we're working our way through this book and uh, aiming to learn new truths that God would have for us from it. Thus far in our study of 1 Samuel, we've met a few characters. We've met uh, Elkanah and his two wives, their kids, and Eli the priest. And one child in particular who is named, who we've been learning uh, about in terms of the significance of his birth, was Samuel. Samuel's the newest child to this home. He's the miraculous answer to the brokenhearted prayers Of the barren woman Hannah. If you're unfamiliar with the story, I encourage you to take that Bible and later today read those first two chapters. Hannah made a promise to God that if God would allow her to get pregnant, she would give the child back to God for special service at the temple. And Hannah followed through on that promise. Last Sunday, as she gave that child, Samuel, up to Eli to serve at the temple, she prayed. What turns out to be a prophetic prayer of praise. And essentially, what her prayer says is that God works through shocking reversals. Brothers and sisters, that's what God is always about bringing low the proud and building up the humble. The proud, low the feeble, raised up. Sometimes He doesn't do it in our time frame or in the way that we would want, and yet this is the work that God's about. Today, as we turn to a new paragraph, starting in verse 12, we'll see the passage shift from focusing on Hannah to focusing on two men who've only been mentioned in passing thus far. Their names are weird. Their names are Hophni and Phineas. If you're looking for new names for sons in the future, I would not recommend those names. These are Eli's sons who were priests at Shiloh. Now, as priests, their job was to encourage and enable people to worship God. This is quite literally why they existed. All day long, they were to benefit the people of God by assisting them as they drew near to God in the temple. As Rebecca comes to read for us now, uh, would you follow along and listen for whether or not they actually did that job or whether they did something different. Thanks, Rebecca.
1: Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed in a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord, so then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy, named, the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do these things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh, Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest part of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your fathers should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will, be no, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever the only one of you whom i shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out to grieve his heart and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men and this that shall come to you both of them shall die on the and this that shall come upon your two sons hophni and phinehas shall be the sign to you both of them shall die on the same day And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places, that I may eat a morsel of bread.
0: Thank you. Did you thank Rebecca for reading half the Bible? (laughs) Appreciate that. Um, One of the great uh, benefits to approaching the Scriptures the way we do here as a church is that we're forced to deal with topics and look at issues that we would otherwise probably not spend time on. And God, in His wisdom, has given us all the Scriptures that we might profit from them. So this morning, may we benefit from a, a, a text that will raise discussion that may be very much what we need today, but would not have chosen to look at. Verse 12 is incredibly direct. Hophni and Phinehas were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Back in chapter 1, when Eli came across Hannah at the temple, and Hannah was so brokenhearted and grieving and weeping, that as she was praying, Eli came over to her and accused her of being drunk. You may remember that her response to Eli was, don't look at me as a worthless woman. It turns out that Hannah was not the worthless one. It was actually Eli's sons. Now what would cause such a harsh verdict on these two men? Well, the sins of the sons are the answer. And this passage highlights for us in particular two things that these sons were doing. First, in verses 12 to 17, we see that in their greed, Eli's sons stole from God and disregarded God's people. Now, this will take a bit of explanation. So would you give me five or six minutes to try to give the background to something that otherwise to us is so culturally different that the meaning isn't clear at all. Before the death and resurrection of Jesus, followers of God, particularly in this time period, followers of God were commanded to travel from their homes to the temple with their offerings and sacrifices. And they were to do this essentially in two types of occasions. One was when there was a festival or or a... Uh, a special time of remembering something that God had done in the past. So they would travel for certain times of the year. The other occasions were times when a person was aware that they had sinned in some particular way, and they were to go to the temple to seek the forgiveness of God. If you want to learn more about that, you can look at a book in the Bible called Leviticus. And in Leviticus, especially the first half of the book, These occasions in which there were to be sacrifices and offerings are recounted. If you get reading those chapters and they seem um, particularly odd to you, another thing you could do is get on the website of our sister church that we're helping replant called Light in the Desert. And right now, Brian Jerry is preaching through the book of Leviticus, so you could jump on and listen to those sermons. He is a brave man. Now... As you'll read through those chapters, what you'll find is that when an animal was brought for a sacrifice and the animal was killed, then the death of the animal reminded the sinner that the wages of their sin is death. And the death of that animal would be regarded as happening in place of the sinner. You see, God would graciously accept the death of the animal, in place or as a substitute for the one who had sinned. It was an early graphic picture of the gospel that we see so clearly today. Now, if that doesn't sound odd enough to you, let me make it even stranger. Because after that animal would die, then its remains, its meat were then put on an altar. And the book of Leviticus tells us that in particular, as the fat was burned off that animal, the smell would rise up. And that smell in particular was an offering of praise that was acceptable and pleasing to God. I guess God doesn't smell in the same way we do, because I think that smell is rather disgusting. I realize all of this is incredibly strange but what it aims to do is to remind us of the seriousness of sin and of the kindness of God. And this would happen literally thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of times. And the priest's job was to be there and to assist and to help. But in this case, Eli's sons were selfish, greedy, and godless. In the passage we just read, what we heard was that they would send their helpers to, as soon as that meat was put up on the altar, instead of waiting, instead of waiting for the fat to be burned up and the offering of praise to be offered to God, they would get their own portion. Sphered. They interrupted the worship of God to satisfy their gluttony. I guess they didn't like skirt steak or even ribeye. They wanted the prime rib. See, that, that they wanted the meat that was still commingled with the fat. And so they cared more about their stomachs than they cared about the right worship of God. And the worshiper of God who have left far away, traveled all that time, spent their hard-earned money on that animal, and then offered it up in worship, was left without the knowledge that worship had been lifted up to God. The tragedy. Eli and their... Eli, and in particular his sons, were not leading the people of God to worship. They were impeding it. But there's more. Eli's sons didn't just satisfy their dietary desires in sin. They also sinned in their sexual lust. Verse 22 says that the female workers who worked at the temple were sexual They were sexually preyed on by these sons. Literally in the entrance to the place of worship, these priests were forcing sexual favors. We may think of the Me Too movement as something modern, but it is not. This has been happening a long, long, long time. Far from helping, Hophni and Phineas were hindering the worship of God and making a complete mockery of God's Word. And worse still, Eli knew, and Eli didn't stop them. Eli allowed all of this to continue. Friends, do you ever look around and wonder, is God paying any attention at all? there are still Hophnes and Phineases today. Like the Israelites alone, some of us have been hindered in our worship by those who are supposed to help us. There are greedy and sexually immoral pastors today, just like there were greedy and sexual perverse priests back then. There are power-hungry pastors building a name for themselves, not for Christ, doing so at the expense and to the neglect of the sheep God has entrusted to them. Frankly, every few months in recent years, yet another high-profile pastor at yet another prominent megachurch has been caught in yet another scandal. If you've paid any attention at all to the news, you've seen this. It's happened yet again in the last few weeks. And inevitably, it turns out that as that scandalous pastor is revealed, it's also revealed that the leaders around them knew. And then instead of practicing God's good gift of church discipline, They practiced self preservation. They permitted it to go on. Friends, have you had a circumstance, have you been in a setting in which you found yourself asking, does God not care? Does God not see? Does He not hear? Is He not holy? Will he allow his people to suffer under evil leaders forever? Our passage this morning isn't happy, and yet it does give us an incredibly important answer to these questions. You see, it tells us the, the emphatic answer is yes. God does see, God does hear you were with us last week, you'll remember Hannah's great prayer in verses 1 to 10 of the same chapter. If, if not, I encourage you to take a Bible and later today read it. It'll just take a few minutes. But in this prayer, what we found was Hannah praying about reversals. Here are a few of the things she prayed. She prayed that the mighty would be broken and the feeble would bind on strength. She prayed that the full would go without and that the hungry would be hungry no more. That the poor would be made rich and the low would be exalted. that The wicked would be cut off and the faithful would be protected. It's what Hannah prophetically prayed at the temple where Eli and the sons would have overheard. Now, frankly, I think when we hear that kind of prayer in the Bible and we see texts where these kinds of behaviors are listed, that what we're tempted to think is about people who we might call outsiders. Canaanites and Philistines, dirty politicians, sex trade workers, corporate thieves, leaders pushing a religion they know to be false, bitter and angry men defiant atheists who shake their fist at God. These are the mighty we expect to be brought low. And yet, in this text, we find that judgment begins elsewhere. Judgment begins not out there, but in here. The reversals Hannah prayed for originate among the people of God. Verses 27 to 36 couldn't be clearer. In a time when even religious leaders were spiritual shams, God sent an unnamed man. No one knows who the guy is, but some man showed up with a word of judgment for those inside the church. Brothers and sisters, God sees, God knows, God will act. If you've been hurt by a godless pastor, then this old, old text proclaims a present truth. God sees, God hears, God knows, God will act. Hannah's prophetic prayer of adorning a sovereign God rose up to God. There wasn't a weak period of time in the reading of the text if you just sit down and look at it. She prayed, verses 1 to 10, and then the rest of the chapter is about the beginnings of the unfolding of her prophetic praise. And judgment began not out in the world, but with Eli and his worthless sons. And brothers and sisters, in a way that ought to send shivers down our spines, Hannah's prayer is still playing itself out in our own day. As imposter after imposter after imposter, is exposed. Now, it's true that Eli confronted his sons, but he refused to remove them from office when they remained unrepentant. Church, if your elders are ever in significant, unrepentant sin, and they will not heed each other's warnings or your warnings, may you not make the same mistake Eli did you remove us before God must do far worse. It seems that the wickedness of these sons was matched only by the weakness of their father. And so God promised to end this family's greed, their power, and their lust. In verse 34, he says that the sons would die. And very quickly in the narrative, we'll find that happened. And that their family priestly line would end. This would take longer to come true, but it did. Friend, if you are a spiritual pretender, if you say with your lips, I love Jesus, but in your heart you know you have no interest in Him at all, if you know you are a sham, This passage puts you on notice. God sees. God knows. And when we certainly cannot predict, but God will act. Verse 25 is perhaps the scariest verse in the whole passage. It presents to us an example that it is possible to be persistent in spiritual rebellion long enough that God will give you over to that sin. Your defiance will reap eternal consequences. God, at times, ends up willing sinners' unwillingness to come to repentance. That's a horrifying truth, but it is just, just like God hardened Pharaoh's heart, God prevented Hophni and Phinehas from repentance. Friend, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus Christ, and in particular, if you've presented yourself as one who has but you actually haven't. Today's the day for honesty, for repentance, because God ensures the mighty will fall. And may you choose to bend the knee, may that be the falling, that you might stand again and enjoy the good grace and love and kindness of God before it's too late. Now there's more to this particular passage than just judgment. So far that's all we've considered. This is a heavy, heavy text. But if you look at it closely, you'll find that it's brilliantly written to highlight an amazing contrast. The contrast between the mighty who fall and the feeble who Who rise. You see, sandwiched between the accounts of Eli's sons and their judgment are demonstrations of the divine hope of God. The hope of God bound up in the life of a boy named Samuel. Now if I could point it out, it's easy to miss the first time you read through the passage because the judgment is so shocking to us. We may miss the hope so carefully sprinkled therein. If you look at chapter 2, verse 11, at the end, it says, the boy, this is talking about Samuel, the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. It's just a phrase. And then we're given a fairly lengthy account of Eli's son's sins. But then next, there's a little phrase, twenty-one, verse 21, and the boy, Samuel, grew in the presence of Of the Lord. And then another lengthy account of the sins of the sons. And then in 26, now the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And then the judgment cast on Eli and his sons. And then just a phrase, chapter 3, verse 1 Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Don't miss what the narrator is saying brilliantly laying before us. Hophni and Phinehas are grown men. They are priests in positions of power. And their dad is an old man who ought to have known better. And they're all caught up in wickedness. And yet right there, living in the same place, as a person with no particular importance, with no position of power, of no consequence whatsoever, is a boy. Every time he's mentioned, the narrator says he's just a boy. There's a boy named Samuel. And Samuel is honoring God. Samuel is doing what's right. Samuel is a feeble boy, but he's faithful to God. And he is right there in the middle of all the people in power abusing the people of God. Church, make no mistake. Eventually and inevitably, this is how things work out in the kingdom of God. 100% of the time. The mighty, namely, those who are strong in this world but who are bankrupt of true godliness, the mighty will fail. And the feeble, namely those who are insignificant in this world but who live for the glory of God and the reality of the next world, by grace the feeble will rise. This is the guarantee given us in this text. God who is holy and sovereign will bring about the shocking reversal in every one of us. The mighty will fall. The feeble will rise. God will make sure of it. And so, brothers and sisters, what we need to know this morning is that God sees, God knows, God will act. And may we be faithful while we wait. Friend, if, you've been in a situation in which you felt feeble while someone in power who had an authority over you neglected their spiritual duties, then may this passage encourage you to not lose heart. You can count on God who upends the wisdom of the world to impart the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, at the right moment, he will upend what has happened. All those who are spiritual shams will be exposed. All those who may have no money, no power, no degrees, No strong reputation among the masses. No tens of thousands of followers will be lifted up. This is what God does. This is ultimately what the gospel of Jesus Christ brings about. Now, of course, we have to ask of this passage, what in the world does this have to do with Jesus? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 35. This is our answer. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and my mind. I will build for him a sure house. That doesn't mean a physical structure of a house that won't get knocked over. It means a lasting lineage. It means a family line and he shall go in and out of my anointed forever. Friends, very often when you read the Old Testament, you'll find that promises given have both an initial fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment. There's two horizons, if you will. By the way, did you see a couple of those sunsets this last week? They were amazing. And just like you look up high and see One coloring of that sunset, and you look down lower and see another. When we consider the promises made in the Old Testament, there is an initial coloring, an initial fulfillment, and one that's much longer, further ahead, but endures forever. That's the way this text works. Originally, the fulfillment of this passage likely came about in a man named Zadok. Now, you probably have never heard of him. Zadok replaced Eli's descendant Abiathar, and therefore the priesthood moved from Abiathar over to Zadok's family. The reason you haven't heard of Zadok is because he's only mentioned in passing, later in the story of 2 Samuel. And so this can't be the priestly line through whom there are people going in and out of God's presence forever because we don't know anything about them and because they all died. Zadok was only the initial fulfillment. The passage is ultimately about Jesus. Now how do we know that? Well, it's because the Bible works together and locks into place to tell one cohesive story. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, we read this, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests, including Zadok, were many a number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that's Jesus, holds a priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the high priest promised in 1 Samuel 2. So, brothers and sisters, this morning you have been saved to the uttermost. Whatever obstacles are present in your life outside of you and whatever Indwelling sin remains within. Jesus himself continues daily to make intercession for you by name. Through him you are always welcome and acceptable before the Father. And don't let, therefore, the failures of leaders in the past cause you to disengage from God and his people in the present. Your faithful high priest is there for you. And if you are not yet a Christian, if you're here this morning and you're still considering Christianity, may our passage today help you to think about the justice of God. In the end, powerful people who prey on those who they are supposed to help prosper will not win. God will make sure of it. Every sinner will meet God. Friend, you can either meet God today in Christ, where your sins are dealt with by Him in grace and mercy, or you can meet God in a day of judgment in which the consequences will be on your head forever. What you do with Jesus determines everything. Let's pray. Before I voice a prayer on behalf of all of us, take a moment in silence for each person to reflect and pray. Father, this story we've considered this morning is very old. Likely it is a record of an event that happened some 3,100 years ago. And yet, current in our own day, there are spiritual phonies. We pray as a church family for all the churches out there who, of late, have had pastors in whom they put their trust exposed for tremendous failures. God, we pray the witness of these churches would not be snuffed out, that you would bring about grace and repentance and renewal. And that somehow, miraculously, many would not walk away from you as a result. God, I pray this morning for people here in the room who have been harmed through the sinful hypocrisy of leaders in their past. We pray that you would guard them and protect them and build them up. Help them to find again a confidence in you. We pray for the leaders in this church, God, that we would not neglect our own souls. And that this church, Lord, if we ever find ourselves as pastors in significant sin and are unrepentant, that they would do their duty and remove us. Father, I pray that no one hearing these words would fall under your judgment, but would only know the grace of God accessible to all in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name.